Hi there, and thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition. We're a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Today's little journey into tiny science starts with a link between man and beast. We've talked all about stripes on animals. What we have not talked about, stripes on humans. Let's get to our morphology expert, Dr. Greg Barsh. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Barsh. Glad to be here again, David. (laughs) All right, so... We have talked about seemingly every type of spot and stripe you can imagine, dogs, cats, zebras, but humans have their own kind of stripes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, Well, you know, humans don't normally have stripes. Otherwise, uh, well, everybody knows that humans don't normally have stripes, but it turns out that in some situations you can see stripe-like patterns on humans, and one of the... uh, 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 one of the ways in which that's been described uh, is by uh, a German dermatologist uh, named Albert Blaschko. And so these, these stripes in humans are called Blaschko's lines. Okay, so quickly, Blaschko's lines, they almost look like they're made of freckles. They're dense patches that make these swirling patterns on the skin, like little galaxies. You can see pictures of these online, but of course here we're worried about what the lines look like on the genetic level. Generally, you see Blaschko's lines in individuals that have two different populations of cells that differ in their genetic composition. Uh, so, um, and the ways in which they can differ uh, are, uh, are myriad. They can have a different number of chromosomes. They can have a mutation in a gene that affects uh, skin cell development. Uh, or other kinds of changes, but basically Blaschko's lines represent uh, two different populations of skin cells that have, again, different genetic constitutions. And so the reason you see them is because the cells of one genetic constitution show up differently. They have a different appearance. They either grow slower or faster or have a different uh, uh, tone, say, than the cells of the other genetic constitution. And the reason you see them is because when skin cells are being established, they start out as uh, a small number of cells, and then as they divide, they remain the uh, they remain together, uh, but they move in they move during uh, development in ways that are uh, stereotyped and often predictable. And so, when you see a particular, say, a Blaschko stripe that is light, uh, it represents one progenitor cell of one gen- of a particular genetic constitution uh, and all of the daughter cells of that uh, that then migrated in a particular pattern that's right next to another cell of a different genetic constitution that migrated in the same pattern. That's not what we've been talking about with cats and zebras. Blaschko's lines are pretty different from tabby stripes and cats. And uh, one obvious difference is that the width and the regularity of the stripes in cats uh, are constant, whereas the width and the regularity of the stripes in humans are quite random. Uh, Now, the the other difference is that, uh, as I mentioned, the Blaschko's lines arise because of the way that cells move during development. But tabby stripes are completely different. Uh, They don't reflect... Uh, patterns of cell movement. Instead, uh, they represent 
uh, this amazing and as yet not understood phenomenon in which a uniform field of cells in the skin can somehow acquire the capability to express different genes in a regular and predictable pattern. And how that happens, uh, we don't yet know, but that's not what's happening in Blaschko's lines in humans. But that's not to say the mechanisms of human stripes are totally unique to humans. And you actually see something very similar to Blaschko's lines um, in dogs. Of course, it's much more common in dogs than in humans, uh, and that's in a dog that carries uh, a, a type of uh, color variation called brindle. So brindle dogs uh, are exactly like Blaschko lines. They represent uh, the patterns of uh, skin cell uh, uh, proliferation and movement during uh, fetal development, uh, and they represent cells that have a, a different genetic uh, constitution uh, in the dogs uh, and in the humans. Of course, if we're going to talk about human morphology, the way humans look, we don't want to fixate on rarely visible cases like Blaschko's lines. One of the most sociologically important differences morphologically in people is obviously skin color. Can you tell us a little bit about what we understand of how skin color varies from person to person? Yeah, sure. Skin, skin color varies a lot. And, you know, that's something that uh, uh, not only, yeah, that's, that's something that is part of human history uh, and, of course, is closely related to human origins, right? So you can trace back and say, well, when did uh, differences in human skin color arise? Uh, and you can do that both uh, looking uh, sort of grossly at where, uh, where people of different skin colors uh, currently reside and infer where their ancestors resided. And you can also do it uh, genetically by asking what are the genes that influence differences in skin color and where do we see those genetic differences. You can track differences in skin color back through human evolution. Sure. I mean, I think it's a, a, a general observation to say that fair skin is much more common in uh, regions of uh, high or low latitude, whereas dark skin is much more common in regions of equatorial latitude. Uh, and in fact, that simple observation uh, uh, has allowed scientists to uh, understand really for decades that there's been selection, uh, natural selection, for both uh, dark skin in individuals who reside or who resided historically in equatorial regions and light skin for individuals uh, who resided in uh, polar and uh, polar regions and, and regions of, uh, of higher, higher and lower latitude. And um, the, the general observation that most people agree on is that those differences are related to exposure to UV irradiation, that dark skin uh, protects individuals from damaging effects of UV irradiation, uh, whereas you don't need that protection uh, in regions uh, of more polar latitudes where there isn't as much UV radiation, but by contrast, you need UV radiation to get uh, active vitamin D uh, absorption into, uh, in, into, the, uh, into your body. And so it turns out, yeah, that sunlight exposure to UV radiation uh, is absolutely required for all humans and, and other organisms uh, to produce vitamin D. 
And so in equatorial regions, there's so much UV radiation that people get all the vitamin D they need. In regions that are uh, of higher or lower latitude, uh, there's uh, less UV radiation, less sunlight. And so there's a need to absorb more of it to have sufficient amounts of vitamin D. Of course, that only begins to cover the incredible range of human skin color. For instance, why do people with Asian ancestry have different skin tones than people of either European or African ancestry? So certainly, um, you know, light, uh, say fair skin and dark skin, um, I think you would say that individuals of East Asia, uh, their ancestors lived in uh, latitudes that are similar to uh, ancestors in Western Europe, right? So there the selective forces are the same. And so fair skin in Asians uh, was certainly driven by the same forces, the need for vitamin D, uh, as was driven um, as, as fair skin in Western Europeans. Nonetheless, in general, you say, oh yeah, well, Asian skin, it's different. So how is it different? Uh, well, it's not quite as fair in general as um, uh, individuals of Western European ancestry. Uh, and when you actually look at the genes that are involved, it's pretty interesting because uh, the one of the major genes that uh, uh, contributes to fair skin in Western Europeans uh, is a gene called SLC24A5, which basically carries a mutation in uh, individuals of Western European ancestry that causes it not to work at all. So the SL24A5 gene basically doesn't work in uh, individuals of Western European ancestry. Now, in individuals of Asian ancestry, they have a perfectly normal SLC24A5 gene. And so there must be other genes, there are other genes that contribute to fair skin in individuals of Asian ancestry. Just because there are genetic differences that beget skin color, don't think that skin color creates these broad divisions. People see differences in skin color, and that leads to preconceived notions uh, about other things that are different between people. The amount of genetic variation within, say, Western Europe is similar to the amount of genetic variation between Western Europe and other continents. How many genes does a human being have? Oh, 20,000 or so. How many contribute to skin color? Well, that's a great question. Uh, there's uh, a handful, four, five, or six, that are responsible for, oh, between, say, a quarter uh, up to a half of the variation that we observe, depending upon how you measure variation. Uh, and then there are probably... Oh, a hundred uh, to maybe five hundred more, each of which have a very tiny effect. And those hundred to five hundred or more, uh, we don't know their identity yet. We know that we're th that they're there because we can look at the genome on average and say, oh yeah, well the genome on average says that there's something there, uh, but we know, don't know their identity yet. That leads us to another question: How do you figure out? Uh, how do scientists figure out? What are the genes that are responsible for differences in morphology? Uh, and so uh, a first answer, you might think an obvious answer is, well, I'm going to look at all the regions that are different, all the parts of the genome that are different uh, between individuals from Western Europe uh, and individuals, say, from Southern Africa or Eastern Africa or Western Africa. Um, and if you, if you did that, 
you would find genes that control all the differences that are responsible for morphological differences between individuals from Africa and individuals from uh, Europe. And you would also find a lot of other changes that have nothing to do with uh, any morphological differences or any phenotypic differences at all. So in fact, that's not a very good way to just say, I'm going to compare the genomes of two individuals that look different. Because if you compare the genomes of two individuals that look different, you'll find a lot of differences. And, all, and, and you know, 90% of those differences won't have any effect at all on phenotype. So how do you do it? How do you figure out uh, what makes... Uh, uh, what causes skin color differences in individuals of different ancestry? And the answer is you look for situations in which there's been what we call admixture between individuals of African ancestry and individuals of European ancestry. So one of the best places you might think about, well, let's look at, say, individuals uh, like African Americans. Uh, and that's pretty good that, you know, people have done that. Uh, the work that we've actually done, uh, and this is... Uh, work that uh, was led by a former postdoc uh, in the group named Sandra Beleza that now has her own laboratory in the UK and a very good collab friend and collaborator named Hua Tong at Stanford. Uh, for that work, uh, we used uh, uh, an island uh, population off the coast uh, of Western Africa called Cabo Verde. And Cabo Verde turns out to have uh, almost equal parts uh, DNA that originated in Africa and DNA that originated in uh, Western Europe. And so if you were to go to Cabo Verde, you would see uh, a mixture of individuals across the entire range of skin color, across the entire range of eye color. And what's more, you would see that many of these correlated phenotypes like facial appearance, like eye color, like hair color, they're decoupled in Cabo Verde. So you'll encounter people that have very dark skin and blue eyes and vice versa, and facial features that you might think of as typically uh, 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 resembling individuals of African ancestry, but uh, found an individual that has uh, skin color that's very similar to, uh, say, an individual of Western European ancestry and vice versa. And so by studying these individuals uh, in admixed populations in which we can decouple the correlation between the traits, we can track down which of the genes are responsible. There are a number of other fascinating examples throughout human history that demonstrate the effects of, say, vitamin D on a population. Uh, it's notable that uh, native Aleutian Islanders uh, and that native Scandinavians uh, tend to have darker skin than, say, the uh, individuals of Western European ancestry that now populate much of those regions as well. And the anecdotal explanation for that is that historically, these uh, native Aleutian uh, Islander populations, native Aleutian Island populations, or the uh, native Scandinavian populations had diets that were very rich in, uh, in whale oil, uh, which provides a lot of vitamin D in the diet. Uh, and so if you have a lot of vitamin D in the diet, you need less vitamin D uh, from the sunlight you absorb. Uh, the other really fascinating story, uh, uh, it's an anecdotal story, uh, relates to 
Uh, what happens if you don't have enough vitamin D? Vitamin D is required for a lot of processes in the body, uh, including including calcium metabolism and the formation of, uh, of bones. Uh, and if you don't have enough vitamin D, you get a condition in which the bones are deformed. It's called rickets. Uh, and these days, of course, people don't have rickets because you get a lot of vitamin D in your diet or your sunlight that you're exposed to. But in the Industrial Revolution, when there was a lot of smoke in the air and uh, individuals uh, started to work in factories, there was a bit of an epidemic of rickets. Uh, and uh, that's thought to represent uh, the uh, lack of uh, vitamin D availability for individuals in Western Europe who suddenly had a change in their environment due to the Industrial Revolution. It's also worth noting that skin color doesn't function totally independently. There are other physical traits that differ between these populations, like facial structure or hair type. So these traits can be correlated for a number of different reasons. And one of the ways that we can gain some insight into the answer in any particular case is to actually uh, figure out which genes are involved. And that's actually been done. Uh, we've done work on that in skin color. Other people have done work. Actually, we've done work on it in skin color and eye color, uh, as have other groups. And other groups have looked at hair color. Other people have looked at uh, traits like uh, height or skin thickness or facial appearance. Uh, and again, the answers uh, vary according to uh, which question you're asking. Uh, but uh, I can just tell you in the case of skin color, uh, for which uh, we and other groups uh, have identified, oh, say, four or five major genes that contribute to skin color differences, say, between uh, individuals of African ancestry and individuals of Western European ancestry, that the genes that we've identified, the only thing they do is affect melanocytes, pigment cells. They don't affect anything else. Uh, and so it's not like these genes are controlling any other traits uh, besides what melanocytes are doing. Uh, melanocytes are something we've talked about quite a bit with animals in terms of coloring their fur. Do melanocytes control human hair color as well as skin color? And eye color, right? So uh, all of the pigment in humans is brought about by melanocytes. Uh, and you can have melanocytes that produce a lot of pigment, uh, in which case you have dark skin or dark hair or brown eyes. You can have melanocytes that produce not very much pigment, in which case you have fair skin or blonde hair or blue eyes. Uh, or you can have melanocytes that produce a different, slightly different kind of pigment that is reddish or yellow colored, uh, in which case you generally have, if you're a human, you have uh, red hair, blue eyes, uh, and fair skin, often with lots of freckling. Tell, tell me a little bit about that phenotype in particular, because it's interesting. Uh, it's it's one kind of specific thing, right? Sure. So uh, that particular phenotype is caused by mutations that uh, uh, knock out the, the function of a gene called MC1R for melanocortin-1 receptor. And when the MC1R isn't working, uh, then you're unable to make the uh, type of pigment that is uh, dark, uh, uh, can be brown or black, and is called eumelanin. And instead, the melanocytes only make the type of pigment that is called pheomelanin that is generally uh, red or yellow colored. 
So morphology gives us insight into all these different groups, different ancestries. But from a genetic perspective, Dr. Barsh is asking a wholly separate question about the ways morphology differentiates people. Are there categories? Uh, and I think the answer is no, there are not, not categories. When I think about skin color, I don't think in terms of you know, shades of black, white, gray, yellow, or red. I think about continuous variation. Uh, it's, I think a useful analogy would be height. How many different heights are there? An infinite in, number. Endless. Yeah. Leaving us with a view of people not grouped by morphology, but arrayed across an incredible spectrum of diversity. So the question is, why, why study human morphology? I think that's a great question, and I, that has a number of answers, right? So, so one answer is there are uh, some serious conditions that cause morphologic abnormalities uh, that we'd like to be able to do something about. We'd like to be able to treat to understand better. Uh, they're pretty rare, uh, you know, conditions uh, like craniosynostoses, uh, like uh, conditions that sometimes also affect uh, height, uh, like achondroplasia. Uh, and so understanding the morphologic differences that are responsible for those rare conditions can help us understand uh, uh, or think about ways to, uh, to, to hopefully treat, treat those conditions. Um, an another reason to study morphologic differences is to learn things about basic biology. And there I, d I think that studying humans doesn't give you any advantage over studying, uh, say, any model organism in the laboratory. In fact, there's a lot of disadvantages because uh, with model organisms in the laboratory, you can look at the morphology as it's happening during development, which you can't really do in humans. And a third answer that is really unique to humans, and I think a very important one, gets to this question that we talked about earlier about traits that are correlated. Uh, because I think it's really important uh, as a society for us to understand that uh, things that uh, the genes say that are responsible for skin color differences, they just affect skin. They just affect melanocytes. They don't affect anything else. Uh, and the answer is the same, uh, or we think it's probably the same for uh, morphology. So another way of saying that, you know, is, is that, well, these skin color differences are only skin deep. Uh, morphologic differences are superficial. Uh, and uh, it's the, the rest of the genetic variation that makes us what we are, uh, makes us different from one another, and contributes to our diversity. Again, thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition into the genetics of why humans look different. All this season, we've tackled fascinating stories of morphology, the genetics that give life its incredible diversity. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama, and we've got a campus full of scientists doing public research along companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If it's work you find worthwhile, just do us a small favor right now. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this, and tell someone that you listen to this interesting little story about genetics. Help them find our podcast. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thanks for joining us.
We hope to bring you another season of Tiny Expeditions soon, so stay subscribed. Also, if you want to see pictures to go with the episode you just heard, including what Blashko's lines look like, check out tinyexpeditions.org. For Tiny Expeditions, I'm David Kumbrock. Talk to you soon. Hudson Alpha. 